Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. As we come to his word, we ask that we should go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading of his word, as also the preaching of it. So let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And as we uh, attend to the, the words that you inspired by your Holy Spirit, for Luke the Evangelist to write, we ask that we would remember that they are given for our infallible instruction, correction, and training in righteousness. We pray, Father, as we consider what our Savior has done on our behalf, that we would follow him in the way that he has laid before us, that we would know our Savior, that we would know his glory, and that we would rejoice in his victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word uh, from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And his people said, Amen. Amen. We come now to Jesus Christ's first great act of office, his first great work after he has been publicly anointed and declared by uh, not just John the Baptist, but by the Heavenly Father and the, the Holy Ghost to be the Christ, and not only the Christ, but as we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, the last verse before we have the genealogy given, Thou art my son, beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. That we have the voice and testimony of the Father that this is not only the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And so, immediately, as he comes after that great event, and the fullness of the Spirit without measure being poured out upon him, and he had it not just for the moment, but he abided with him, as the testimony of John is in John John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. that the first thing he does is go into the wilderness to fast and to be tempted. And we're told that he is led unto this by the Holy Spirit, that this is not some accidental thing. It's not an act of bravado. This is what the Father had in store for him. This is necessary for his office. This isn't run-of-the-mill temptations either. This is Christ as the second Adam. The first Adam met on the field of battle with Satan, the serpent, in the garden, and he faltered and fell and ruined mankind. 
The second Adam has to also uh, meet on the field of battle. The strong man who now has dominion over mankind. And he conquers. Not in the glory of Godhead. Because that would do us no good. The fact that God is reigns over Satan is of no controversy to those that understand who God is. But the fact that the Messiah also is a just representation of mankind. That Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as a man, without sin, without spot, and without blemish, show that man's nature can bear the image of God without spot. And that therefore he can also become that lamb of God that can take away the sins of sinful man. That he can lift us up above uh, the depredations and the, the wiles and the uh, corruption of the evil one. But it had to be challenged. It had to be proven. It had to uh, be made evident and it had to be accomplished. The devil here goes off, perhaps also under the, uh, the guidance and that mysterious providence of the Father to meet the champion of our salvation. To see if the Son of God would also be the Son of Man. To see if he could uh, divert the Savior from that great task. And it's important to note that although there are species of our temptations found in the temptations of Jesus Christ, uh, that these three particular are designed to attack our salvation in attacking our Messiah. They are designed to take Christ off the work that he has been given to do. And they're all different, and we are obviously looking at only the first today. But the wilderness temptations were the task of Christ as Messiah, as Savior. That part of his work is to break the tyrant's bondage over sinners. If you turn to uh, uh, Romans, oh, it's not Romans, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, to see the fallout of this. In Luke, chapter 11, verse 20. After Jesus was accused of casting out devils by the power of the devil, by Beelzebub, Christ answers and says, But if, the fing- but I with- but if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils... No doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this has happened because when a strong armed man keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all the armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. And he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. That what Jesus had done and Jesus is proclaiming that it is done and is demonstrated in his casting out the devils, that he had power over the devil, that he had defeated the devil, that the strong man that had mankind in bondage 
had been beaten by one stronger. That his power over the devils didn't indicate that he was a wizard or a sorcerer or a witch. He wasn't in collusion with the devils, as his enemy said, but that he had routed them on the field of battle. That their captain stood not against him. And so when he comes onto the battlefield, uh, the armies uh, are rooted and routed in fear that there is none to protect them and no armament to save them. But when did this happen? This happened in the wilderness. This happened after Jesus' baptism. It was the first thing he did that he might go forth in power uh, from there into Galilee and Judea. And so when he is attacked by Satan here, it isn't really Christ that Satan is attacking. In his temptation of Christ, he is seeking the ruin of your salvation. He is seeking uh, to hold on to those thralls that he had won in our first sin. And this is why he waits till after the 40 days for that opportunity to make his main assault. In the 40 days, Christ was being sustained. As Moses was sustained on the Mount of Horeb, or Mount Sinai, when he saw the the tabernacle given, and, and the glory of the heavenly throne that he was going to make the earthly copy of, when he had the, was writing the law and will of God for his people, he was sustained miraculously 40 days and 40 nights without bread or water, without any food. Matthew tells us this is the same of Christ. When Elijah, coming fresh off the conflict with Baal, whined before the Lord that he alone uh, was faithful in the northern kingdom, The angels came to him and met his needs and provided for him in the wilderness and then made him strong to go for 40 days and 40 nights and fast in great journeys as well. Uh, They were preparing, uh, they were being prepared by the Lord for a great work. And Satan dared not touch him directly. Uh, Luke and Mark tell us, though, that even in those 40 days, there were temptations. That's part of the point of the fast, that we try our faith in the Lord by going without the things of the earth. But this was a supernatural thing, setting apart his work. Uh, but he waits until that's over. When the, the natural uh, desires and inclinations make their, uh, themselves apparent, and Jesus hungered. After Moses' fast, he ate. After Elijah's fast, he ate. The devil thinks there's no harm in coming and, and showing Jesus Christ a way that he too might eat. The temptation that we see here is devilish in the truest sense of the word. It's It's conniving. Uh, just as uh, he deceived Eve. And she looked upon it, and Moses tells us she looked upon that fruit, how it was desirable and good for food, that there wasn't anything inherent in it poisonous, and that it was, because she was deceived, 
something to be desired to make one wise. And she took it and ate, and Adam ate with her. And they were ruined. The devil comes, not so much to get Christ Jesus to do directly against the will of God, but that he might work in such a way against the devil that he robs mankind of their Savior. Uh, The temptation is that Christ himself distrusts the provision of his Father, that he has to look to his own devices, that he needs to accomplish good ends by his own means, that he needs to follow his own law and not the law of God. He seeks to cast doubt on the Father's provision. This we get in verse 3. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, and this if is not so much, this is not where the doubt comes in. In the Greek, the word if can, can also connote, as it sometimes does in English, uh, the, the notion of since. Since thou art the Son of God, command this stone that it may be bread. You are hungry. You are not without resources. You have been declared by heaven above to be the well-pleasing Son of the Father. You have not only that, but you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling upon you. It was seen to come down and rest upon you. And after all, John the Baptist in his own teaching, chapter 3, verse 8, said if the Lord was without a church and children of the Abraham, he was able to raise them up from the stones. And if God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones, certainly the Son of God, when he's hungered and without bread, can raise up bread from this stone here. We look upon that. After all, if we had uh, at our disposal powers that were beyond mankind, what would be the harm? Didn't Jesus, much lesser, at least to our mind, an occasion turn water into wine? Why not turn the stone into bread? On another occasion, did Jesus not take a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and feed 5,000? On another occasion, 1,000. There wasn't anything inherently sinful here being offered. But what the devil's doing is sowing doubt. Doubt and lies are his weapons. And he is putting in juxtaposition the glory that, he is reve- that was revealed at his baptism. That Christ as man became even more conscious of to have the confirmation from heaven that Remember, as a man, he might not have yet had, at least certainly not publicly, that he was the Son of God. And he did have dwelling upon him the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So even as a man, he had the fullness of divine power and grace given unto him. And these are glorious things. And he has just now been sustained for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. 
which is again a glorious and miraculous thing. But now he's hungry. And I would imagine that a 40-day fast makes one very hungry. And there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the glorious pronouncements that the Father has given him and his own condition right now. And it's hard to see the goodness of God. And the devil is saying, well, the Lord perhaps has abandoned you, but you have this power. Change the rock into the the stone into the bread. Just as he did to Eve, hath God said, ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And then with a lie, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Insinuating evil thoughts of the Father. And this is what he was doing here. He is... Uh, giving a foretaste of other temptations or at least other objections that will come against Christ in his ministry. He will get this temptation again and again and again, but he defeated it, so it doesn't really tempt him after this. And we should understand, by the way, Christ is impeccable. There is no corruption in his heart in order to entice internally his temptations. It's not like the devil when he comes to you. The devil comes to you with offers of of wrongdoing, but he has a hook inside your heart. Your hook already desires what the Lord does not want to give. And it says it's bad to give. There is nothing of this in Jesus. All temptation had to come from outside. And it has no hook, honey. I just want to put that out there. But he's demanding, what the devil is doing is demanding on his own terms, a faithless term, a sign. I've heard that God can raise up uh, children of Abraham from the stones. You're hungry. Supposedly you're the son of God. Turn this bread, turn this stone into bread. The devil didn't doubt he could do it. The devil's whole point, the devil's whole purpose was to get him to do it. He knew he could do it. And if he did it, it wouldn't prove that Christ was the Son of God so much as that he wasn't the Son of Man and Savior of Man. In chapter 11, again, Christ speaks to a wicked generation. In chapter 11, verse 28, Uh, a woman has called out, Blessed is the womb that bore thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. And he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. They don't just make an idol out of the Savior, but really listen to the Savior. When the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. They seek God on their own terms. They seek something to be oogled at. They seek something to wonder at. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet, a sign that humbles them. Whereas Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon 
And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. They actually heard the glory and took it to heart and their lives reflected it. The Queen of Sheba heard that there was a wise man in Jerusalem and she took the effort to go there herself from the ends of the world. She didn't just marvel and praise God that there was a wise king in Jerusalem. The Ninevites heard that destruction was coming and without no promise of mercy, they humbled themselves before the Lord and found mercy. But there were many in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees chief among them, that would have a savior to gawk at and to just be happy he existed, but changed their life not one bit. They sought a sign on their own terms. Just as the devil would try to get Jesus to give him a sign on his own terms. But Jesus responded. Let's look at his response. And Jesus answered him and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. A lot of modern translations leave out that last phrase. And their argument is, is to transpose from Matthew. The problem is that he does this. That phrase is not how it's in Matthew. Matthew has the fuller, but man shall live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Uh, this is shorter, and I, I consider it to be, uh, it's a good paraphrase of Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, but regardless of whether it's there or not, certainly Deuteronomy 8.3 is being cited. It's important to remember the context. We read it this morning. It's one of the reasons why we read it this morning, so that we would have that fresh between us. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, and he humbled thee. This is Moses giving the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means. The law right before they enter into the promised land. He's summarizing what they have learned through their 40 years in the wilderness. And he tells them, He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna that thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And going on in verse 11 through 18, beware, this is the warning from these words, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments, his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou have eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thy heart be lifted up. And I forget the Lord thy God. He goes on, which brought thee out, to repeat what he's done, to re, brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, and there was no water, and brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that they might humble thee, and that thou might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And... But rather thou say in thy heart, my power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore unto thy fathers as it is this day. We sometimes read this, uh, the, the response of Jesus Christ in a, 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 a very spiritual manner. 
that we live not by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds out of the, by every word of God, as if we, we live in faith and not just by flesh. That's not what Jesus is saying. And that's certainly not what Moses was saying, although faith is here, and that's true enough. What he's saying is that when we have these needs, we look to God who is providential. God brought the Israelites out of Israel. And they complained and they thought that the hardships of the wilderness were, were worse than their slavery in Egypt. And they wanted to go back. But God was providing for them. And God sent forth the manna. And in the extended narrative, we find that the manna came six, uh, seven days a week, but they were together only six. That they were together only for the day, except on the sixth day when they were together for the seventh day as well. And we find that many of them disobeyed, and the extra they gathered spoiled and rotted and turned to worms. And we find that there were those that didn't gather the t- double amount on the sixth day, and on the seventh day when they went out together, uh, it, it soured in their stomachs. And it became destruction unto them. Because even where God was obviously providing for them, they were seeking their own way. And the manna was a lesson. No, God will provide for you, but you, you receive it on his, own lesson, on his own way. Jesus is telling the devil, you seek to put distance between me and my father. Yes, I am a man. Yes, I am hungry. But life is more than satisfying hunger. Life is more than meeting my immediate needs. It's living under God's rule and provision. The commands which this Ramata, this word, the, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God can be translated every direction. Uh, it's not the same as wisdom like the Logos. That I live under God's dominion, under the Father's dominion. And I trust that in doing so, He provides for His people. That it's not simply enough for me to satisfy my hunger, but I must satisfy my hunger to God's glory. As He will tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. Or, or rather, a Sermon on the Plain, if we look in, in Luke, in chapter 12, verse 29, 32, He says, and ye seek not, uh, seek not what ye shall eat and what ye shall drink, neither be ye doubtful of mine. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. He knows you need them. But rather, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You're not little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't call us to himself to ruin us. He doesn't cause us to trust in him to betray that trust. He didn't deliver the children out of Egypt to destroy them in the desert and wipe out the name of Israel. He brought them out of the land of Egypt to give them the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. He takes you out of the dominion of the devil to bring you as a bride unto Christ Jesus that you may know the full glories of heaven above. He doesn't call you to himself in order to ruin you. But that you might know the glories of the truth 
of righteousness, of mercy in Him. And therefore, when we are seeking to alleviate our hunger, we don't seek it through unlawful means. We don't seek it as, as a way to, uh, certainly in a way that compromises our trust in the Father's provision and in ways that He has not directed us. We seek it as His gift. It's not to say, because Paul will say, He that doesn't eat, he that doesn't work shall not eat. And he says, Those that don't provide for their own family shall be accursed. But he's not saying those things as if working is somehow a denial of the providence of God. God has given those people that can work the ability to do so, and they ought to do so. And those, he's given them families to provide for because they can. And they ought to make use of it, not as their own power, but as gifts from God, because not everybody has it. We know this. You know, you can do, you see somebody prosper in something and you do the exact same things and it doesn't prosper. You might tell yourself, well, it's because I didn't do certain, there's things I didn't see and didn't do. You know, a farmer can tell you, the conditions may look completely right and some things will grow up and some things won't. Some children will be obedient and some won't. Some of your schemes will work out and some won't. And there's no rhyme or reason. I'll tell you this. By testimony of the people who are here, there are times when I think that I have not provided, done what I need to do to preach a sermon and I just do it anyway. You know, the Holy Spirit has blessed those. Not always, but He has. And there are some that I have given everything to. And nothing. Because it's not in me. It's not in the one that plants the seed. It's not in the one that tends to the seed. But it is in God that gives the increase. And therefore, it's foolery to think that life consists in wealth and plenty and fulfillment of needs. It's, It's foolishness. To think that life consists in bread alone. I can be full. I can be wealthy. I can be healthy. But if I have not the Father's favor, those are all vanities that will come down in ruin and they will not prosper. But I can be poor. And I can be hungry. I can be detested by the world. I could fail at everything I do, but I have the favor of the Father. Then like the poor man Lazarus sitting in the bosom of Abraham, he has what he needs. Like a thief upon the cross. What more glorious assurance. What man ever has died with the words coming from the mouth of the Savior. Today you will be with me in paradise. These are the words of Christ. He cites God's law in doing so. He conquers 
that you may conquer in him. He goes to war with the devil, not as the son of God. And this is why he did not turn that bread, that that stone into bread. He came to the battle as the son of man. Man was the one that needed the salvation. And as man, God in the flesh conquered the devil. That we too might follow in his footsteps. That we too might, might enjoy that conquest in him. Because it's true that even though these three temptations that Jesus faced are directly attacking his messiahship, that they do reflect the ways of the devil in our own temptation. Sin, the devil, works to separate you from your heavenly father, to so doubt as to his goodness to you, to, to make it so that you're thinking, even as I read, the father knows you have need of these things, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will provide you with everything else, to be thinking, you know, that's good to say, preacher, but I really need to give my full attention to this job, this next meeting, this, this work, or it ain't going to work out. That's the temptation of the devil to say that God really is not there for you and will not prosper you unless you do your own thing. And bodily needs, sometimes bodily means of accomplishing good ends, become the focus to the exclusion of the Lord God and we forget him. And that's what the devil wants us to do. And this, by the way, we see all around us. You know, we live in a world that can't stand quiet, that needs to be distracted on everything, that needs to have music or the TV running in the background. You can't drive a car without turning on the radio or putting in a, well, I say cassette because I drive an old car, but you know what I mean. We can't have earplugs in our mind listening to something. We can't have silence Uh, Even uh, in the worship service. Why is that? Why can we not focus upon the Lord? You know, God says, be still, be quiet, and know that I am the Lord. There's a reason and a use for that. TV comes in. Screens. It's not TV anymore. It's screens. And how many times have you found yourself putting aside the phone, I need to get something done, and it comes right back. Before you know it, it's right there in front of you. It's addicting. And you know what? The people that, the, the corporations, the government, they talk openly about how addicting it is. It's designed to be addicting. They make money because it's addicting. And you ain't going to approach an addiction with moderation. Recognize that whatever the motivation of those that are making money off of it are, though, that behind that is Satan. Behind that is one who doesn't want you to remember that God reigns above. God has all things in his hand and working them to his own ends. It is the great use of fasting. Fasting was always accompanied by prayer and scripture. And it's designed to remind us that even without the things, particularly uh, food, that the Lord will sustain us. 
And so in, in Romans chapter 8, if you look in verses 11 through 14, Paul writes, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised, him up, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by a spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. He's not speaking against the needs of the flesh here, but he's speaking about the dominion of the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Christ was the Son of God because he didn't live by the flesh, but he lived by obedience unto his Father. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, I get under my body, I bring it into subjection, not because it's evil or vile, but so that I will not miss the goal of my race, so that I might, as I preach to others, fail of the life that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27. Satan cannot easily conquer those who have already conquered the flesh, who are no longer under the dominion of the body. And those needs that pop up every moment. We learn from here, sin works to separate us from the Father by drawing us to concentrate on the flesh. And Jesus would have none of it. He shows you the way. He is the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ is conquered, and we might conquer in Him. And so we are to seek first to live by every word of God, trusting in His gracious love. You might have an opportunity uh, to, to get something that you're without. An automobile, uh, a piece of land that you often wanted, a home. But the way set before you is not the divine way. It's not the way that is open to you. Well, maybe if you rationalize it a little bit, maybe if you just do this one thing, that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to look to that opportunity and the ill means to attain it And remind yourself, man doesn't live by bread alone. I can go without that if it means going without my God. I will live by every word, every command, every direction of my God and my Savior. But to do that, but to do that you have to be well armed. Christ did not fight against the devil with no weapon. He could have. He had the authority of the Son of God to rebuke the devil. He will rebuke the devil. But in his war, he takes up the sword of the Spirit. And why does he do that? Why does he quote Moses? Is Moses a bigger authority than Christ? No. Why does he quote him? Because it is the sword that is given to mankind, to his church. He has armed you for the conflict. That's what the armament and panoply of God is is given for in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, uh, dealing with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But you can't use a sword you're unfamiliar with. 
You can't use a sword that you never take up. You can't use a sword that you are ignorant of. Christ, from a young age, dwelt in the Word of God as the Word of His Father, as the word, His Word in His divine nature. He is the eternal Word. But there is that mystery union. He wasn't, he wasn't a demigod in the flesh. He was man, even though He is God in the flesh. And as He strode to conquer for the sake of mankind, He took up the weapon that He had given mankind. The law of God. If we would find the Lord delightful and faithful. We have to take up that sword. We have to trust that what he has given us for our direction is delightful. We have to trust that what he has told us to do is good. We have to trust that he isn't a wicked father that will give us serpent when we ask for bread. He isn't a wicked man that will give us uh, uh, rocks when we ask for bread. That he is the one that gives far more abundantly than we ask when we trust and depend upon him. You go this day, remember this day is the Lord's day. You don't find it to be all that great and wonderful. Well, have you honored it? Have you remembered it? Have you rested in the Lord this day? You go forth into the week and uh, you find that the uh, the blessings that you receive gathered in the church and around the word are not with you. Well, have you taken what the Lord has given you? His word, his prayer, the privilege of prayer. Have you remembered him? This was the strength of the saints. This is the strength of the fathers of the church. This is the strength of every godly man and woman throughout history. And we turn a blind eye to it. And we put it all aside. And we ignore it. The most damning of all is that we put the word aside. And we don't live by that word that comes out of the mouth of God. And therefore when the devil comes in his craftiness and his lies. And he says your, good, your need right now is more important than God. He ruins a great many people in the church and outside of it. And he brings them down and smothers them in sin. But Christ has conquered that we might conquer in him, that we might live not by bread alone, but by every word of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have not hid yourself and made yourself unknown that you have revealed yourself most particularly in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that our Savior conquered the evil one, that we are no longer in bondage to him. And we ask, Father, that we would not put ourselves in bondage to him, that we would not listen to his evil and his wicked lies, but that we would trust your goodness for us and therefore give our lives to you. We ask, Father, that we would live by your word, and by every word that comes from your mouth, through the glory and praise of the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.